Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Please calm down. The music and everything, everything. Instead of, I went and bought me an outfit today that costed a lot of money today. You know what I mean? Because I figured that Wu-Tang was going to win. I don't know how y'all see it, but when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. We teach the children. You know what I mean? Puffy is good, but Wu-Tang is the best. Okay? I want y'all to know that this is ODB and I love you all. Peace. I'm confused now. Confused now. Confused yes. Wu-Tang is for the children. And that's the best way to start a new backstory podcast with one of the most influential groups in hip-hop history. I'm talking about the Wu-Tang Clan. If what you say is true, the Shaolin and the Wu-Tang could be dangerous. In this episode, I will take you back to the early days of the Wu. Little, come on, baby, pump it up! Cause we got something well, live yo, for yo, you now, come on! Yo, yo I got, I got, Give I got, it yo. to me, give it to me! I had a front row seat to the clan from their humble beginnings. Album coming out, right? Yo, we got right now, we got Protect Your Neck, you know what I'm saying? The Method Man out right now, ringing bells. We're going, we're going to get into the album party around September. We got mad other projects going on, Dirty Bastard. Let the man got you know, some little projects. We're saying we're gonna kill him this shit. To tremendous success. We had we pulled working. I know y'all did you know a lot of work. Y'all did Word. a lot of work. We said start like from that. the ground. Word. It's still like it's that. Still like that. You, you know. know? We ain't gonna never go ahead and be too big that we can't go ahead and understand what we here for. Right. We here to, to go ahead and unify us, man. Then several classic solo projects. So only built for Cuban Lynxes, bros. They keeping they click strong. You know what I'm saying? Okay. It's holding the fort down. Everything is strong and, and well built, like well built like cement. Add on all the trials and tribulations. Man, I didn't really get to do no songs and no shows. I had to, you know, go back to work with Wu Tang and all that, right. all that. You know what I'm saying? So you know, I finally just got my chance to get ahead and just work on this. Even though it took me like around a year and a half, you know, I went through a little bit of trouble. You know, I don't want to jail. Right. And we cannot forget the brilliance of the late great ODB. Yo, I live, I got shot. I know y'all, y'all heard about this. Who cares? In the streets of New York, in the street of Philadelphia, you got some live mother hubbers and you got some whack mother hubbers. Sometimes the live get caught up in the whack. Sometimes the whack get caught up in the live. And then, you know, that basically explains all that job. This is the backstory of the Wu-Tang Clan. We have only 35 chambers. There is no 36. The first time I was introduced to the Wu-Tang Clan, their energy really stood out. I had experienced a bunch of hip-hop crews since day one of hip-hop, but nothing compared to the Wu-Tang Clan. They were all coming from struggle, poverty, Many were involved in the criminal justice system. And this 36 Chamber album was really all their cards on the table. Usually an artist's first project is brilliant because of all the struggle that it took them to get to this creative place. I was so inspired by these guys and their timing in hip hop at that moment was much needed. So a few months ago, I was in Los Angeles and I was driving to LAX and I saw a billboard for the new Wu-Tang series on Hulu. 
And it really brought out a flood of emotions to kind of when it all began. So let me take you back to 1993. Hip hop was in a strange place, especially for anyone on the East Coast. I grew up on the East Coast and this is the birthplace of hip hop. So there was a sort of attitude about hip hop coming from New York and, you know, pushing out to the rest of the country. It was the birthplace. But in 93, the West Coast had taken over hip hop. A lot of the major projects that were selling all of the albums at that time were not New York based or East Coast based artists. You could say that the East Coast was in a dry spell after introducing hip hop to the masses straight out of the boroughs of New York City. And this would, I would say, would be New York's first struggle, New York hip hop's first struggle. It had to be hard, though. Think about it. You're the center of attention after birthing so many artists and classic albums. And then all of a sudden, the West Coast starts uh, developing their own artists and they're selling way more albums than anybody from the East. And they're developing superstar artists. In the early 90s, the Wu-Tang Clan, along with Nas, Biggie, and of course, a tribe called Quest, brought it back to the East and paved the way for the next generation, which was just a few years later, which featured Busta, Jay-Z, the Fugees, uh, Bad Boy, Diddy, Puff, all of that stuff. All of this renaissance started to explode around the release of the Wu-Tang Clan's first album. In an industry with a lot of surprises, no one saw them coming. Think about it. A triple platinum debut, a quadruple platinum double sophomore album, several gold and platinum solo albums, Wu-Tang collectively has sold a staggering 40 million albums to date. Many hip-hop historians consider the Wu-Tang Clan one of the greatest hip-hop groups ever. Not a bad accomplishment for some kids from the hood. I mean, I mentioned a few minutes ago, several of them had issues with the criminal justice system. They came from severe poverty, and they were able to figure this out. I mean, these were the kind of kids that society would write off. The society still does that today. But somehow... From that birth, the Wu-Tang Clan. But forget about all that. I just want to let all y'all people know that old dirty bastard album. Excuse me, I burped, but don't worry about it. My album be out March the 28th, right? See, what's it called, dog? It's called Dirty. Uh, Doodoo, doggy, rough, rough. <laughs> Return to the yeah, yeah. Thirty six chambers from the old dirty basket. When you see my album. <laughs> You're going to see something that you've never seen before. 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 That energy again from Old Dirty Bastard. And you're going to hear more of that in this edition of the Backstory Podcast. The Wu-Tang Clan members were all first-generation New York City children of hip-hop. They watched its initial success. Then 10 years into the genre, they take it to another level. So... How did all this happen? Here's a quick backstory hip-hop history lesson. America was in transition in the 90s. After the 80s and the effects of really bad governmental policies that directly affected poor black and brown people in America. 
you got to think about it. In the 70s, there was a lot of economic downturn in America. And whenever there's economic downturn, usually black and brown people suffer more than anybody else. So then you get to the 80s and you get to Ronald Reagan, who was the president, and he cut taxes and he did this whole Reaganomics thing. And Reaganomics wasn't good for black or brown people either. Then the onslaught of crack cocaine later in the 80s on urban communities across the country devastated inner city America. Out of that desperation birthed hip hop. I speak about this in earlier backstory episodes. It's well documented that hip hop started in the borough of the Bronx in New York City. Now, how did that come about? Well, in the late 60s and early 70s, as white residents fled the city, many sections fell into dark times. High unemployment, heroin wreaked havoc on the city of New York and most other inner cities in America during that time. In 1975, the city of New York was broke. The state could no longer assist with help. The mayor famously at that time went to Congress and the White House to ask for help. And if the federal government does not help us, I think it will find the problem afterwards, which it would have to help us with, much more serious. His words were definitely ominous for the future. President Gerald Ford, who at that time was not an elected president, He was put in place after the resignation of Richard Nixon and the impeachment hearings that led to Nixon's departure. Gerald Ford famously told New York no for any federal funding. In fact, the New York Daily News ran the headline, Ford to New York, Drop Dead. Think about this. America's largest city was in a serious bind with an inadequate school system and social programs gone. Wide swaths of the Bronx in Harlem and Brooklyn became dangerous wastelands as landlords stopped maintaining their properties to force residents to leave. No heat in the dead of winter, broken bottles and trash left on the streets, abandoned cars. Sounds like the lyrics to Grandmaster Flash first mega hit the message. These same landlords would actually torch buildings for the insurance payments, leaving entire communities in the Bronx abandoned. There are several movies that depicted this era of New York City, like the hip-hop classic Beat Street or the Wild Style movie. Uh, There was a cop thriller called Fort Apache, the Bronx. If you're not familiar, you should actually check these films out to see the grittiness of New York City during this late 70s, early 80s time period. There was even a horror film made in the early 80s called Wolfen about a pack of deadly wolves killing New Yorkers. These killer wolves would hold up in the abandoned buildings which littered the Bronx and Harlem's landscape. Looking back on that film, you can kind of say it was a little racist, cryptic view of American cities. The wolves in these abandoned buildings were sort of a metaphor for the poor people of color who lived in those communities after white flight and the chaos that ensued in these communities. In the classic hip-hop film Beat Street, they corralled one of these buildings and held parties there, stealing power and using space heaters. The times were tough and desperate, and it was out of this period hip-hop was born. 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx is the place where it all got started. Shout out to my man, Cool Hurt. The recent short-lived series on Netflix, The Get Down, explored this period in hip-hop history. As the 70s, then 80s continued, New York City was in a crisis, and out of this crisis was how this art form would change the world. Hip-hop came to be. I mean, think about it. The youth had nothing. They were let down by the city, the federal government, their school system. All that was consistent was the streets and the criminal justice system. 
there were a lot of bad things happening in our communities. In the 1993 classic Brian De Palma movie Carlito's Way, the lead character Carlito, played by Al Pacino, says, and Jay-Z recorded it years later, the streets is watching. She is watching all the time. So hip-hop kind of became the megaphone. Years later, Public Enemy lead Chuck D talked about this. He said, rap serves as the communication that they don't get for themselves to make them feel good about themselves. Rap is Black America's TV station. It gives a whole perspective of what exists and what black life is about. So my parents were divorced. One was living in Philadelphia. The other was living in New York City. And I spent my weekends and summers in New York during the 70s and 80s. So I had a front row seat to the hip hop culture being born. Hip hop was a way for young people to express themselves at a time when things seemed bleak. We lived in Harlem, but my older brother was a really good basketball player and we would go to courts all throughout the city. But mainly because we lived in Harlem, we would go to the Bronx and he would go and hustle some games. So on these travels, we would encounter some really tough characters, some really tough situations. And so while my brother played ball, I would wander around the parks and peep out what else was going on. So at that time, block parties were sort of the big thing starting at dusk. DJs would bring out their sound systems and hotwire the power from the street lights, and everybody in the neighborhood would come out. There would be rap battles as a DJ would play popular R&B songs, looping the beats back and forth for the MC a.k.a. the master of ceremony, to do his thing. There will be battles. One MC will become crews of MCs. One of the earliest battles I can remember was Cold Crush Brothers versus the Fantastic Five, a.k.a. the Fantastic Romantics. You got to really love these names. These battles were legendary for creativity and the best one-liner comebacks. Now, one of the members of the Cold Crush Brothers was Grandmaster Cass. He happened to be managed by a guy named Henry, who at the time had a part-time job at a pizzeria in New Jersey. One day, Henry was working in the pizza shop, rapping one of Cav's verses. Joey Robinson happened to come into the restaurant and love what Henry, or his rhyme name Hank, was rapping about and asked him to join a group that his mother, the great Sylvia Robinson, was forming called the Sugar Hill Gang. By the way, Sylvia Robinson was an R&B singer and wrote a really good song for Al Green in 1973. The song was about sex, and Al thought it was a little too much for him, so she recorded it herself, and it became a number one record called Pillow Talk. Anyway, she recorded a few albums, then became a record executive starting uh, one of hip-hop's first big labels, Sugar Hill Records. And the first group that was on that label was the Sugar Hill Gang. She wanted to capitalize on the energy that hip-hop was having in the New York City area. Hank knew he couldn't rap, so he went back to Kaz and asked him to ghostwrite his verse for a song for this new group, the Sugar Hill Gang. That song was Rapper's Delight. It was recorded on the first take. The music for Rapper's Delight was basically Good Times from Chic, which in 1979 was the biggest disco record in the world and one of the biggest records in New York City. Actually, a few months before Rapper's Delight even came out, Debbie Harry, a.k.a. the artist named Blondie, who had a big song called Rapture, she was influenced by the hip-hop energy building in the clubs in New York City because at that time, punk and hip-hop was sort of like bubbling in the club scene in the same place in New York City. So you could go into these clubs and you would have all these different types of uh, folks, some liking rock, some liking punk. Definitely the hip-hop, R&B, disco stage was kind of ending. So all this energy was happening. And Blondie, or Deborah Harry, she was very influenced by that. In the late 70s, 
Blondie was performing at the Palladium, which is a classic club in New York City, with The Clash, which is a punk group, and Chic, which is a disco group. And during Chic's performance, Fab Five Freddy, who is himself a hip-hop icon in New York City, he was definitely an early pioneer. He was actually an artist as well, and he would go on to host one of hip-hop's first national TV shows, UMTV Raps. He jumps on the stage with the Sugar Hill Gang during Chic's performance of Good Times. A few months later, Niles Rogers and Bernard were at a club in New York City and Rapper's Delight was playing and they freaked out. As the story goes, Sugar Hill Records actually thought they could just put the song out without crediting Bernard Edwards and Niles Rogers. Well, they sued and received credit and royalties. Rapper's Delight was hip-hop's first major hit, opening up the genre to audiences around the world. Rapper's Delight was catching lightning in a bottle. It went double platinum and the Sugar Hill game became big stars. Big Bad Hank's verses were being written by Kaz, who you can say was hip-hop's first ghostwriter. And if you listen carefully to Rapper's Delight, Hank even uses Kaz's alter ego, Casanova Fly, in the rhyme. Hank promised Kaz that he would get credit and royalties, but that, of course, never happened. Most of the people who knew who the Cold Crush Brothers were and they heard Rapper's Delight thought it was Kaz on the song, not Hank, because it was Kaz's verse, but Hank was doing it. So that's a little hip-hop history. But anyway, back to the Cold Crush Brothers. They were building up their rep as a master rap crew. Then on July 3rd, 1981, these two crews, the Cold Crush and Fantastic Five, battled it out in Harlem World for $1,000, which at the time was a ridiculous amount of money. Cold Crush won the battle, which has been debated for over 40 years. But what also happened that night was that the battle was recorded, then pushed out on the streets as one of the first major mixtapes. The following year, they reenacted their battle on the big screen in the hip-hop classic movie Wild Style. I love that scene in the movie, the way it was choreographed with both crews on a basketball court, toe-to-toe going at it, rhyming. The Cold Crush Brothers ended up touring all over New York City. So think about it in this moment. You've got this mixtape of this battle happening that people are listening to because everybody had boomboxes and cassettes. The radio station started playing Rapper's Delight. It became a big hit, not just in New York, but everywhere. And then in the verse, you hear sort of like, whoa, wait a minute. Is that Kaz? You know, what's going on from the Cold Crush? And then it started expanding to all five boroughs, Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut. And sitting back, it would help inspire a crew that would change hip hop 10 years later. So after Rapper's Delight, there were an onslaught of MCs and groups giving hip hop its first golden age. It was an explosive period with several iconic stars heralding this new art form. Three cousins, two from Brooklyn and one from Staten Island, watched and plotted as hip hop took shape, not just through music, but through art and dance. Um, got raw talent here. Yeah, you know? raw talent. Definitely. So how long have you been dancing? They'll dance together. Yeah, well, 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 like I like to kind of like call out for the so far is like like the, the tricks, you know, like the, the stunts and stuff like that. How they gonna do it? Mm-hmm. I don't participate with an actual dancer. He participates in all the dancing. Yeah. How long have you been dancing? I've been dancing, you know, since I was a little kid. A little kid. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I, you know, I always had a funky style when it came to dance. Mm-hmm. Well, I got this dance called the A song. Those cousins consisted of Robert Fitzgerald Diggs. His mother admired the political brothers, President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who sadly were both assassinated in the 60s. Robert had a unique childhood. He was born in Brooklyn, spent his summers in North Carolina, then spent his formidable years in Steubenville, Ohio, where as a teen, he got into trouble with drugs and petty crimes. 
He had formed a group back in New York City with his two cousins, Gary Grice and Russell Jones. They all loved hip-hop and started to chart their path by working together, forming a group called Force of the Imperial Master, also known as the All In Together Now crew. Each member recorded under an alias. Grice was the genius. Diggs was Prince Rakim, or the scientist, and Jones was the specialist. The three cousins as a group never signed to a major label, but got the attention of some folks in the New York City rap scene. Biz Marquis at the time, who was on a major hip-hop label, noticed them, and in the early 90s, he helped the genius get signed to his label, Cold Chillin', whose artist lineup at that time featured, check this out, Big Daddy Kane, of course, Biz, Marley Maul, MC Shan, I mean, Marley Maul was one of the great early producers, and Cool G Rap. These artists were some of the biggest names of that era. So for the genius, a hip-hop kid, this was a big deal. Prince Rakim would sign at that time to Tommy Boy, another powerhouse hip-hop label early in the game. Now, their roster at the time, De La Soul, Digital Underground, Queen Latifah, Stetsasonic, Naughty by Nature. I mean, at this time, you could probably say Prince Rakim and the Genius had made it, both signed to major hip-hop label deals. But that is one of the biggest misnomers in the music industry. Getting signed is hard, But developing a brand and having sustained success is the hard work that most fail at. This is when I first encountered the beginnings of what would eventually become one of hip-hop supergroups. You could say almost born around this. Born Yeah, it's in our genes, you know. know (laughs) um, Been doing it for a long time, tearing up parties, waxing MCs, just anything you could name as far as MCing. So, you know, we come a long way. You know, it's like... It's a long story, a very long story, you know. He's always the hypest in East Town. Where he lived at, he was the hypest MC. Uh-huh. I lived at. Where you guys from, you think? Brooklyn. Yeah. Brooklyn, yeah. you know. I was like, from the East. Uh-huh. He's from Red Star, you know. He flies MC out in this town. I am. You know what I'm But he had some Staten Island flies MC out there. Okay. You know now, being a first-generation hip-hop kid myself, I had the same experiences that they had. The genre rapidly expanded across the country. Rappers were becoming big stars. It was mainly a New York thing, but soon hip-hop would have crews all over the country. The West Coast started to have its explosion in the late 80s and early 90s. Eazy-E, N.W.A., Ice Cube, under the production savant Dr. Dre, would have a tremendous impact culturally. I got into radio as a kid in the late 80s, and in 1991, while I was in college, I was one of a handful of hip-hop radio hosts on major commercial radio stations. I grew up on Red Alert, Mr. Magic, and Chuck Chill Out in New York, and Lady B in Philadelphia. They inspired me to represent hip-hop culture on the radio, and the show I started in Philly was called Radio Active. Now, during this time, hip-hop music was relegated to late nights and weekends, so these shows became super important to the hip-hop ecosystem. You still had Red Alert in New York. You had Sway and Tech in the Bay Area. You had the late Pink House in Chicago. Every city started to have shows for the culture. There were major rap indie labels like Profile, which had Run DMC, Rob Bass, and Special Ed. And, of course, Tommy Boy and Cold Chillin', all New York based. But all the other major labels were paying attention and would start rap divisions and sign artists from all over the country. So in 1991, Cold Chillin', which was then a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Records, a major label, they signed a young genius, and they brought him to Philadelphia to interview on my show. 
And in the studio, I have a young man. He's on the Cold Chillin' label. Well, that's a real famous label. Got a lot of famous rappers on it. He's brand new. Goes by the name of The Genius. What's up, yo? Peace. How you doing, man? All right, man. Welcome to Philly. Thanks, man. What's up with the title, The Genius? Explain that to me. Are you a genius, first yeah, of all? Yeah, I'm, I'm a lyrical genius, man. Oh, a lyrical I mean, genius. I'm a genius also. You know, um, a genius just represents one with a certain indi individual talent or gift. You know what I'm saying? And... You know, I have that certain individual talent within me that, that I let out on records or tapes or whatever, you know, to show and prove the genius ability. So, you know, I'm so, a genius. So how long you been rapping? For about 14, 13 years. Oh, so you've been out there for a while, back back in old school days. I used to rap all over. I started, like, a long time ago, back in the days when they had, when Sugar Hill and Cool Hurt and all of them came out. I just started writing back then and just became a habit. It's like, it was... I'm like addicted to it. I just had to write and write, so I, I oh, do so it. You're all a hip hop time. junkie, huh? Definitely. <laughs> As you can hear, he was a first generation hip hop kid and was inspired by the energy of the culture. I asked him about what type of MC he was. Well, basically, I'm freestyle, hardcore, lyrical, running in a party, jumping on the stage, grabbing a mic, and just getting busy, or whatever the case may be. During this time period, it was standard that all rappers in interviews proved that they could rap on site, do a freestyle. It was always something that they did. So peep out the genius with ODB providing the beatbox back in the day. Oh, that sounds kind of ill. <laughs> you know something? Um, um, let me tell you about the genius. Yo, I have a style of my own. My hands are like vice grips holding a microphone. I flow smooth with rhymes that are rough. You know why? Because I can't get enough. So I want practice. Not what I preach, but what I teach. In which the critics say is improper speech, but it's proper. Only to those who understand why I walk on stage with a mic in my hand. His brothers look on. Then label me as a psycho. Just because I jump on stage and grab a microphone from a so-called said to be MC. Who admires me with jealousy and envy? My rhymes are delivered with style and potential. Words are flowing smoothly and sequential. Order, be villain, hit and take, recorder, stuffed inside pockets of those out slaughter. But I don't get upset when what? When you bite and steal, I go home and write some ill. Back to poetry, page after page. Imagining the scenery on stage, I catch flashbacks of the seminar as I crush the dreams of a wannabe star. Self-explanatory taught me words were shifted in a unbitten style because I'm gifted and talented with the lyrical ability bound up, up a hip-hop facility. Damaged MCs who dare to enter the center and then challenge the inventor of an impartial rhyming status followed by um, the relevant apparatus. The way I come off on the mic is attractive. I can make a quadriplegic hyperactive with lyrics of friction causing mics to spark. My style couldn't be bitten by a shark. Now all this was before the Wu-Tang Clan existed. And you can hear the genius flow and the type of MC he would become. A few months later, I would have the same experience with Prince Rakim, who, like his cousin, the genius, was on a promotional tour with his label, Tommy Boy. At the time, he had a song called Ooh, We Love You, Rakim. This was a very novelty type of song. Nothing like you hear from what the RZA will become. So you need to Google the video. We love you, Rakim. 
and you'll get an understanding of what I'm talking about if you're not familiar. It's really interesting now looking back how much the cousins ODB and the RZA resemble each other. So you'll see a young prince, but he kind of looks a bit like ODB with a sea of women of all races fawning all over him with a catchy hook. In the song, you can hear a bit of his rhyme style that will go to another level years later. Yo, I be poetic, energetic, majestic, alphabetic, the fresher processor, and also magnetic. The total essence in my appearance that makes a girl get wet and sweat till she drinks. The MC pleaser, no, not a freezer. Yes, I am fresh and the big breast squeezer. Bachelor warrior, others are inferior. I'm the MC conqueror, who is superior? Both the Genius and Prince Raheem's first albums weren't hit projects. The hip-hop industry has always been so competitive, and both of these artists found themselves dropped from their first deals. The Genius commented on it several years later, stating that the label basically put his album out and didn't do much promotion, and he was proud of his work. He does, however, get a second chance, which we will explore later in this backstory episode. So this is no surprise. It happens to so many artists in every genre. The music business is cold-blooded. Just because you have talent doesn't mean you get success. So much hard work, highs and lows go into a successful project, which only makes the next part of this story inspiring to anybody with a dream. Stop the music for a Stop second. Stop the music, man. Hold on. One, time two. out. One, two. Yo, Stop check it out. Stop the music for a second. Cut the music, Hammer. Yo, hammer. hit that shit, money. Hammer. What is wrong with you, Cut man? Cut that shit, Hammer. Crazy is all together now. Stupid motherfucker. I'm going to say peace to the genius. Peace to every black people out there. Motherfucker divine. I'm going to tell all your black baby. people out there. Peace to the gods. What is wrong? I'm going yo. The black man is God and the black woman is the earth and the queen, all right? All right. all right? I said all right? All right. Oh, goddamn right. Then we're going to do it up like this. Pump up. Two, two. Yo, turn up twice or some shit. Yo, Pump give us a little yo, um, sound, two, check. A little sound check. Baby. A little, come on, baby. Pump it up. Because we got something one, loud two. for yo. you now. Come on. Yo, yo I got, I got Give I got, it yo. to me. Give it to me. <laughs> now. That's the rawness of ODB and Prince Rahim as he segged into RZA performing at this community event back in the day. But anyway, back in Steubenville, Ohio, Robert Griggs, a.k.a. Prince Rakim, was charged with attempted murder after a shootout, and that moment changed the trajectory of his life. He was acquitted and decided to dedicate his time and effort to more positive things in music. So, after the stalled success of Cousins, the genius, who was now going by the name the Jizza, and Prince Rahim, who was now going by the name the Rizza, plus ODB, they established the Wu-Tang Clan in Staten Island in 1992, and they had a plan. Shaolin is just like, it's like Shaolin is just, it's more. It's like thousands and like hundreds of thousands of more people coming right behind us with the same thought, the same aspect, the same idea, everything. Everything is going to be in one compound. We're just trying to make it like it used to be. You know what I'm saying? Peace. That's all. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So Wu-Tang. What does that mean? Like their peers before them, for instance, KRS-One, his name stood for knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everyone. Big Daddy Kane, the Kane stood for king Asiatic, nobody's equal. 
Wu-Tang had many meanings. Wu-Tang. I mean, shit, we still yep. told you <laughs> for years. Yep. Witty, unpredictable talent, natural game, wisdom of the universe, truth, and naturally gifted. They had other names, too. Like, we usually take niggas' garments, witty, unpredictable talent, and natural game, wisdom of the universe, and the truth of Allah for the nation of the gods. Seven more MCs will be added to the clan. Clifford, Method Man Smith. Corey Raekwon, the Chef Woods, Dennis, Ghostface Killer Coles, Lamont, You God Hopkins, Jason, Inspector Deck Hunter, Elgin, Master Killer Turner, and eventually Daryl Capadonna Hill. They will release their first single, Protect Your Neck, on their own white label in the winter of 1993. Tongue is a sword, and we chopping off all corny MC's heads. That's why we came with Protect Your Neck. We be watching Kung Fu flicks too, though. That's that's like that's like my like my, 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 my favorite joints, you know what I'm saying? It's just we rhyme. We like the rhyme and, and we murder MCs when we do our thing. DJs along the East Coast started to play it, and instantly folks kept asking, who and what is the Wu-Tang clan? Another reason why the people like us, man, because you like you like like in the clan, it's nine members. It's nine mentalities going to work every day. So so it might not you might not you might not be able to adapt to what I'm dealing with, but you might be able to adapt to what he's dealing with because you might have went through it. So like I said, you know, it's like it's like all these minds is working all the time. So it's like, yo, you know, they from the street because the way they talk and all of that. So it's like people could people could see it. They 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 know they they feeling it. They feel that they feel that strong vibe that we giving it. And and like I said, man, it's just that yo, they love it. They love it, man. It's a big mind. It's a big. It's a big percentage of poor people going on this earth. You know what I'm saying? So they can they can get with actual actually. You know what I'm saying? Feel what we feel. You know what I'm saying? And there ain't nobody trying. I'm always going to be on some ghetto ground. Because I don't know, man. I, when I moved out to Florida like two years ago, man, I started getting on some country stuff. You know what I'm saying? Coming back with sandals and, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I had to come back home, you know what I'm saying? Keep it real with my brothers, you know what I'm saying? And they just brung something out of my heart, and I just brung something out of their heart, you know what I'm saying? I kind of mentioned it earlier. Protect Your Neck was unlike anything we had ever heard before. The clan were creatively using Chinese culture through kung fu movie clips in their music with intoxicating grimy beats. There were also so many MCs, so it was kind of overwhelming to figure out who was who. The RZA was establishing a new kind of sound in hip-hop at a time when Dr. Dre and the West Coast sound he had created was dominating urban culture. The Wu was like a perfect storm because most of the labels and the artists were majority in the New York City area. And when you're not on top of the game, yet all the industry is based where you are, it can become uncomfortable. All the culture creators in New York were looking for something to bring the energy that established hip-hop back east. When I protect your neck is going out, really it's going out to anybody. You, know, so you got to protect your neck, you know what I'm saying? For you, for you wisdoms out there who look good, you can protect that body, you know what I'm saying? But um, you got to protect your neck. If you don't protect your neck, you're going to lose your head. Wu-Tang coming through with the sharp sword, you know what I'm saying? The response to protect your neck was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, they threw out a white label. This vinyl was floating around. All the DJs started playing it. Then radio started playing it. The lyrics, the flow, the complexity were next level for the average MC at that time. Wu-Tang started to field offers from labels. Keep in mind that the RZA and Jizza were experienced in dealing with labels. Their experience actually left a bad taste so they could see through all the BS. In fact, years later, the Jizza did a song called Labels. You need to go and listen to him talk about the industry at that time. But even in Protect Your Neck, he talks a little bit about A&Rs 
at labels. So they were very well versed in how this worked. Now, remember, I said all the major labels were hungry to find the next stars. So the Wu-Tang Clan decided to sign with a new and up and coming independent label called Loud Records, mainly because most of the other labels wanted solo rights for each artist in the group or they didn't understand the group. And the Loud CEO, his name was Steve Rifkin, waived that request and allowed them to sign solo deals outside of Loud if they didn't like the deal he offered. And that really sold the group. Loud was a year old at this time, and Wu-Tang would be the first multi-platinum album success on that label. Steve Rifkin was a shrewd record guy. His father was legendary label head Jules Rifkin, who had a roster full of R&B acts in the 60s and 70s, including the great James Brown. Steve Rifkin worked for his father and learned the music business at an early age. Now, he didn't have the big budgets like the other labels, but him allowing them to pursue solo projects outside of Loud, looking back right now, was brilliant because all the other companies would put serious money behind the Wu solo projects, which in essence would only make the Wu-Tang brand even bigger. When I first met them, Rizzo, I've been trying to track him down forever. He didn't have an answer machine, he didn't have anything. And then um, he finally um, showed up one day. He came up out of nowhere. You know, I'm with Eastwood from the Alcoholics. We hear the record. He goes, I'll be back in an hour. And he brings the, an office from as wide as from here to the end of this table. Right. Right. So it's me and Eastwood and also the whole clan comes. Yeah. And they start performing to the record, protect your neck. Then the doors closed. I don't, I don't know if they set me up or if it was really a real intern or whatever, but some motherfucker comes running through the door and says, that's that shit. And um, I look at him, and to this day, I've never seen this guy again. The Wu-Tang loud deal was a boon for Steve Rifkin. And he had a really good run at loud, eventually launching the careers of Mob Deep, Big Pun, Exhibit, Dead Prez. The Jizza talked about their original deal. We got a deal with loud RCA, Steve Rifkin, but we didn't get any money. So we, it was kind of like good and bad. Because we didn't really get a, a big advance mm. at that time. We were just starting off, but we had so much freedom as far as our deal, and it allowed us to pursue solo careers and branch out. And, and no one was really doing that at that time. So it kind of just opened doors for a whole lot of other artists to follow suit and be able to be Jizza, part of Wu-Tang, and be Jizza, who's a solo, and then get with two other guys and form another group. Mm. So uh, that's what Wu-Tang started. The first time I encountered the whole clan was in Atlantic City in April 1993 at the Impact Convention. This was their first major industry event, which at that time was mainly about R&B music. You see, the senior leaders of the black music divisions of all the labels were not too keen on hip hop in its first decade. At Impact, it was all the top people in R&B radio and records. The Jack the Rapper convention, which happened in Atlanta, was going through the same thing. The BRE in Palm Springs as well. These guys were forced to embrace the music because it was taking over the industry, especially black music. Side note, I recall at that same Impact convention in 1993, there was a new group on Epic Records, again, a major label that was signing hip hop, called Hood Rats. This is Michael Jackson, Luther Vandross uh, label, and they were signing hip hop artists as well. Now, the Hood Rats were a clone of Onyx, which was on Def Jam, which were discovered and produced by Jam Master J from Run DMC. They had come out a year earlier and had a lot of success. 
The most unoriginal thing about the music business still to this day is someone comes along with a new style, vibe, etc. It blows up and then every other label rushes to find their version of that artist. So the Hood Rats had a song called Bootlegger, which was about confronting bootleg tape sellers on the streets and breaking their legs. You should Google the video. The hook was, if you bootleg, you get your leg broke, nigga. They were performing at this Saturday night awards banquet at Impact. Again, this would usually be a very R&B vibe, but the industry was quickly changing. Needless to say, in this room full of suit and tie, black shoe and gown crowd, this performance didn't go over so well. Now, I was a young guy in the business who loved hip hop and was always fighting internally at my radio station to get these songs on the radio. In fact, when they wanted to play a hip hop song, usually at night, late at night, they'd come to Colby and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or I would go to them. And that's how we would play the songs on the station. And my station at that time famously had a no rap work day. To take a wider view, the power structure in R&B and black music at that time was very uncomfortable about hip hop music because it was from the streets. It was the hood and it was very male with constant references to drugs, sex and violence while R&B at that time was clean, safe, and female-friendly. Little did they know that years later, R&B would be just as hood as hip-hop. In fact, it started right around that time. Uh, Jodeci was really that first R&B group to really kind of get raunchy and grimy. I mean, bottom line at this time, R&B was bougie and hip-hop was hood. The late Jackie Paul, who handled all things rap for impact magazine fought her own battles internally to give hip hop a lane at this impact conference. She saw how the music business was quickly changing and all these same labels with R and B departments or black music departments started to have hip hop departments with major budgets. So if you're running a conference, you need label support to keep it going. And Jackie saw that early impact would also have awards. So a lot of major radio players in hip hop would get these awards. And several years into my career, I ended up getting this award and it meant so much for my career to help me connect with a lot of different people that I never knew before. Just being some kid that was thrown on a radio at uh, 20 years old. So anyway, once again, it's 1993 at the impact convention, Steve Rifkin had just signed the Wu Tang protect your neck was moving from mix show to radio airplay. They were unleashed at the Bally's hotel and casino in Atlantic city. What I remember most about the Wu-Tang was my good friend Sincere, who at the time was the, running the rap department at Island Records. He allowed them to stay in one of his rooms because, you know, when you had a black music department or whatever, you would just get a whole bunch of rooms and then you would just funnel people into different rooms. So he allowed them to stay in a room and they ran up the room service and the bill was just crazy. And Sincere had to call Steve Rifkin to get him to pay the bill. I mean, we can laugh about it now, but my man was stressed and I happened to come up on him in a moment when he was dealing with it. A few months later, I would have my first interview with the Klan, which almost got me fired. I'll tell that story in a minute. But first, let me take you to June 18th, 1993. This is the Wu-Tang Clan, my first interview with them. What's going on? There's a lot of you, so one by one, say what's up on the mic. And make sure you speak on the mic, brother. Prince Rakim, a.k.a. the Ruzza. Peace. Shalom Raekwon, the chef, baby. Peace, the judge of the genius in the house. Muppet man, the bull among peace. Yeah, the lyrical assassin, Inspector Deck in the house. Oh, uh, Coach Peace, chill up. He's somewhere in there. Oh, uh, where you at? Okay. Okay, now, the Wu-Tang Clan, how'd you fellas come together? Well, first of all, where you guys from? From New York. Okay. Right now in New York, Shaolin, New York. Okay, did y'all grow up together? 
So y'all real tight knit, tight knit crew. We tight like Bojans. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then like that. Yeah. So yo, y'all got a fat new uh, album coming out, right? Yo, we got right now. We got protect your neck. You know what I'm saying? The Method Man out right now, ringing bells. <laughs> we going, we going to get to the album party around September. We got mad other projects going on. Dirty bastard. Method Man got you know, some little projects. You know I'm we going to kill on this shit. Okay. Now explain the, the title Wu Tang Clang and a, a little bit about what you got, where you guys are coming from. Yo, I want to explain that. Yeah. Yo, check it out. Wu-Tang Clan, you know what I'm saying? Wu-Tang, you know what I'm saying, is a sports style. It's like a sports style of Kung Fu or whatever. We, we, we use, our, we use our, you know what I'm saying, our, our mental more than our feet. Our tongue is like a song. So we coming through, you know what I'm saying, just telling everybody to protect their neck. Everything is real with us, you know what I'm saying? Everything is 100% real. The clan means family. The goal is a family, you know what I'm saying? We can't be divided. We uncomfortable. We come in, you challenge one, you challenge all. It's no more one-on-ones. So to all the other MCs out there, whoever feel they want to bring some moss towards the Wu-Tang Clan or whatever whatsoever, I'm saying, you got to take us all on. Word. Question, Jay. You ain't going to make it through one killer B because it's, it's mad deep with us. Okay, and there's a whole bunch of y'all here, too. There's a whole bunch of us. <laughs> but also but also our goal is, you know what I'm saying, is, you know what I'm saying to show true hip-hop fans, brothers who've been around, saying brothers who love total underground hip-hop, we bringing that sound back to the airways. Now, who's producing the Wu-Tang Clan? Do you guys do it amongst yourselves, or do you bring other people in? Uh, well, right, right, now, right now, I'm doing all the production, you know what I'm saying? Prince Rakim, a.k.a. The Rizzo. Okay. But um, everybody in here got the crazy talent. They all got thoughts and ideas. Mm-hmm. And they starting to learn how to make their own stuff. So soon, you're going to have eight killer dope lyricists and eight killer dope beat programmers. And whatever other form of hip-hop there is a master, we're going to master that. So that night, the clan was packed into a passenger van. They were coming from New York City on a Friday night, stuck in traffic and hadn't hadn't been fed. I was working by myself that night and they came through the station. They were hungry. They were tired. They got all the food out of the vending machines and the hallways leading to the bathrooms were littered with trash everywhere. My PD was furious. He ended up sitting next to Steve Rifkin just so happened the next day at industry vet Hiram Hicks wedding. And Steve caught an earful from my boss. He also laid into me, but I tried to explain him, like, because he said I had too many people in the station. I was like, dude, like, it's the Wu-Tang Clan. What am I going to just invite two people in? Like, I had to invite them all in. And, of course, you know, it all worked out. Um, And a few years later, another Wu-Tang member got me into trouble. And I'll explain that uh, later in the podcast. So back to Protect Your Neck. It wasn't the only Wu energy getting people excited. That white label I told you about that they had given out had a B-side with the single Method Man, and both songs took off in the spring and summer of 1993. The album was highly anticipated. See, like, if you listen to the Clan album, you know, we, we deal with songs that make you want to cry. Make, we, make, we, make, we, make, we deal with songs that make you want to fight. We got skits you know? that make you want to laugh. Word up. So it's like, like he said, we hitting from every angle, man. And this was the beginning of each personality in the group showing their skills. Meth was the first, and he was quickly signed by Def Jam as a solo artist. ODB signed to Elektra. The Jizz signed to Geffen. Raekwon signed to Lau. Ghostface signed to Epic. Again, 
They had one of the most unique deals in hip-hop. Their debut album, 36 Chambers, was released in November of 1993. 36 Chambers, 36 Chambers is like our backyard to where we make all our lyrical, our music, our sounds, whatever, all our styles or whatever. Like that's, the the, that's the home. That's the that's word. Like you said, that's the cave. That's the treehouse, whatever you want to call it. It's like I could bring you through a crazy chamber. He could bring you through a chamber. He could bring you through a chamber. But when we come together... It's on, you know what I'm saying? It's going to be chambers coming from everywhere. You're going to be getting different feelings, different thoughts, different vibes. I mean, it's going to be you. You're going to be feeling sad at one second. The next minute you feel like, ah! You know what I'm saying? And the next minute you just on some old, on some cool out lounge. You know what I'm saying? 36 chambers is basically going through different degrees of life. You know what, yeah. what I'm saying? Like, see, see, every day, every day you go through a chamber. You make it to that next day. So you're going through a chamber, you know? And we just take you through our chambers right now. You know, it's 30, like we saying, it's 36 points in the body. You know what I'm saying? 10 degrees apart. So that's dealing with 360 degrees right there. And see, the clan has 360 degrees within them of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. You know? So it's like, it's like that's, that's what the chambers is. That's what, that's what 36, 36 chambers is dealing with. You know, like, everyday life, man. When we hit you with a chamber, it's taking over your whole body. You know what I'm saying? You feel the music when we yeah. deliver. It's an emotion that you're going yeah. to feel. See, like, if you listen to the Clan album, you know, we, we deal with songs that make you want to cry. Make, we, make, we, make, we, make, we deal with songs that make you want to fight. We got skits you know? that make you want to laugh. Word up. So it's like, like he said, we hitting from every angle, man. You check the flicks, the Wu-Tang and the Shaolin, they were always at war with each other. So it's kind of it's contradicting itself, but where we come from, it, it's all like we all, where we're from, it's like everybody's killing each other out there anyway. It's like a big, giant concentration camp, you know what I'm saying? And we got to get up out. Right now, we paving the way for our peoples to come up out of that. We giving our people's jobs and all that, man, keeping it red. So you know about Protect Your Neck. You know about Method Man. The third single was Cream. Cash rules everything around me. An instant classic. You can't knock what's real. You know what I'm saying? We telling the truth, man. You know what I'm saying? Even even in Cream, that that that's that he that, that's that brother and that brother right there showing the way of life that they grew up. You know what I'm saying? This is what they had to do to get that money. Because it's like, yo, come on, man. Minimum wages, man. That that ain't that ain't my style, man. I've been my father been working all his life, man. He he he, he can't he ain't even got himself an own house. You know what I'm saying? So, so I want I want to show my father. I, I know my father want me to walk better. You know what I'm saying? So I want to have things to go buy my father a big mansion or whatever, whatever, how, however, go just to just to say, yo, dad. You know what I'm saying? You 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 ain't do nothing. You made a son, and your son came out. And boom! <laughs> there you go, baby. You know what I'm saying? Cream was the story of the group. RZA created a very soulful track, sampling "As Long as I Got You" from the Carmels. It garnered airplay all across the country. It was a hood classic. A new artist by the name of Nicole Buss, who was from Amsterdam, actually remade the original Carmel song. And most people listening to it thought she was remaking Cream. But she used the sample version of the Carmel song that the Wu-Tang used. And You was the number one record. But back to the 36 Chamber album. Wu-Tang followed that up with Can It Be So Simple, which featured a smooth Gladys Knight sample. The Wu-Tang Clan were establishing themselves as major artists in the industry, cutting through all the East Coast, West Coast division that was happening. Going through track after track on this album, the Wu were a new force to be reckoned with. Another standout song on the album was Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to F With, which was really the best explanation of the group in a song. 
Years later, Wyclef would coach the legendary Carlos Santana to do his guitar riff on the Maria song based on Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to F With. If you listen to it, that from Carlos Santana is based on this song, Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to Mess With. 36 Chambers by Shore was a classic. Nothing Disappointed. Other tracks that brought attention was Bring the Ruckus, Shame on a Nigga, Clan in the Front. It was those beats and samples that were everything. The mystery of chess boxing. Really, Ghost shut that track down. One of my favorites on the album was Tears, which sampled After Laughter from Stax artist Wendy Renee. See, we didn't know these samples, which made these songs fresh to a growing audience thirsting for hip-hop around the world. What made folks fall in love with the Wu-Tang was that they had dope music, but they were very much like us, very relatable. Someone in the clan was like somebody in your neighborhood. Their energy kind of reminded me of Run DMC, who at the time, when they came out, you know, before Run DMC, you had Grandmaster Flash and you had Soul Sonic Force and they were all really gimmicky. But Run DMC and Jam Master J were B-boys, Lee Jeans, Adidas, leather jackets. I mean, that's what we were wearing in the hood. And that's why they blew up, because people like initially saw them and saw themselves in them. Not that they did not taking anything away from Grandmaster Flash and all the other groups. They were just vibing off of the music scene. I mean, if you look at the artists, Prince and P-Funk and all these other artists, everybody was gimmicky. But hip-hop was like regular people that made music. Years later, while interviewing Ghostface, we talked about this time. You know, we kept it hardcore, but it, it was hard for everybody to go ahead and grasp hold of that because it wasn't in the mainstream. Right. It was only get being programmed with that other kind of music. So, you know, now that that been rocking for so long, everybody's a little tired of that now. They want the pure back. Right. You know, because history repeats itself. So right. that's what we're doing with the Supreme Clientele. Act. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds extremely raw, which is what really set y'all off from the start. You know, y'all was so raw with, you know, when Protect Your Neck came out and Method Man and, and that first album, it was something that we never heard here before. You know what I'm saying? Right. It was all West Coast cats at that time, and y'all was yep. coming out of Staten. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. I remember y'all at the Impact Convention in Atlantic City, y'all squeezed into a van coming down there handing them tapes word, out, y'all. Word. We had we pulled work in. I know, y'all did you know a lot of saying? work. Y'all did word. a lot of work. We said start like from that. the ground. Word, it's still like it's that. Still like that, you, you know. Because we ain't gonna never go ahead and be too big that we can't go ahead and understand what we here for. Right. We here to, to go ahead and unify us, man. All right. Know, all right. Yeah, by all means necessary. After thirty six chambers, the Wu members release highly anticipated solo projects. Hey, Method Man, this is Donald Trump, and I'm in Palm Beach, and we're all waiting for your album. Let's get going, man. Everybody's waiting for this album. I just want to let all y'all people know that old dirty bastard album. Excuse me, I burnt, but don't worry about it. My album be out March the twenty eighth, right? See, what's it called, dog? It's called Dirty. Doo doo, doggy, rough, rough. Return to the yeah, yeah. Thirty six chambers from the old dirty bad shit. The world is definitely missing this energy. 
the late ODB would always light up a room with his presence. We here basically to get paid. That's it. Uh-huh. Wu Tang is, is our is our group name. You know what I'm saying? We, we like we told you before, since dealing with the kung fu lyrics and all that. We here to get paid. We here to get the cream. You know what I'm saying? We here to open doors for our families, our babies, our children. We just want to get that money. That's all. I love to entertain. You know what I'm saying? But I love that money too. You know what I'm saying? So I'm here to get all the money that I can get, start crazy businesses, start crazy different chambers, you know what I'm saying? And just get the money, that's all. <laughs> get the money and, and have money for my little children when they grow up, you know what I'm saying? So they could take my business over when I'm not here, you know what I'm saying? That's all. That's what, I'm, that's what Wu-Tang is here for. The Wu-Tang Clan and the 36 Chambers album was a game changer, not just for the group themselves, but for the entire industry. I mean, hip-hop had its first initial success in New York, but the tides had started to change. And by 93, we're talking about four or five years, because in the late 80s, you started to see the ascension of N.W.A., um, Eazy-E, and of course, the icon Dr. Dre, who was producing this new sound for the culture. So with this success spurred countless other artists all up and down the West Coast. So for instance, in 1991, this was really interesting when this happened. N.W.A. released their second album. It was really an EP. It was called Niggas for Life, which was a follow-up to Straight Outta Compton. It went number one immediately, which was shocking, not only because of the title, because that was very controversial to have an album called Niggas for Life in 1991. It would be controversial today. But because the album was so hardcore, I think the music industry wasn't prepared for it. They were, it just There were all kind of articles written and uh, people talked about it because in that moment, you know, when you went to the Billboard charts, it said niggas for life. General market American teens were buying up N.W.A. and it scared the mess out of everyone. And this niggas for life album also sent a message to everyone else that the West Coast was a serious challenger to the East Coast for hip hop supremacy. You see, everywhere else in the country. They didn't have the same natural bias that East Coast had against anybody else other than East Coast. In the South, they didn't care. I mean, they had their own artists, but they didn't care where you were from and they accepted you. This was a big deal, this album and this energy that was building. And Tupac was uh, first a solo artist in 1991, and he was on Interscope. And he released his first album, which wasn't the big fanfare that he had, that he had ended up becoming. But this is just the beginning of his run was in 1991 as a solo artist. Again, all of the industry is based in New York. New York really is where it all started. All the labels are there. Most of the artists are there. And now the West Coast is sort of dominating the music business. This is 1993 and the East Coast psyche needed a jolt. We needed something. So that year also saw the release of a Tribe Called Quest classic album, Midnight Marauders, which in my opinion was the height of their success. Then later that year, 36 Chambers from the Wu-Tang, which introduced a grimy sound that was the kind of next wave of East Coast music, smoldering under the massiveness of Dr. Dre's hypnotic, funky West Coast sound. Then you also had Ice Cube, who was a solo artist as well. But Ice Cube came to the East Coast to work with the Bomb Squad, which was down with Public Enemy, on his album. But he still had a little bit of that West Coast sound. That's why I always say Wu-Tang really helped start this renaissance of East Coast artists and East Coast music. 
Another album released earlier in 1993 was the debut album from Onyx with their hardcore album Back to Fuck Up. The first single was Throw Your Guns, which came out in 92. There's no way you could do a song like that today. That song was wild. That group was wild. They had another big song in 1993 called Slam, which ended up becoming a pop song as well. So again, we're in 93 and this new energy from Onyx, from Wu-Tang, from Tribe Called Quest, which they were really more established, but they were still established East Coast. It would really pave the way for a run of incredible, memorable, classic projects the following year. So 1994 gave you Illmatic from Nas. I did a previous Backstory podcast on Nas and the impact of this album and the impact of Illmatic. Ready to Die from the Notorious B.I.G., Hard to Earn from Gangstar, which was a masterpiece of beats from DJ Premier, The Sun Rises in the East from J. Rue the Damager. If you don't know about J. Rue, this was another East Coast artist with an album featuring this gritty sound. DJ Premier was another one of the major producers on the East Coast banging out these classics. Another group that a lot of people don't talk about is Organized Confusion, which featured the rapper Pharrell Munch, which a lot of people know. They released an album in 94 called Stress. Again, go back and listen to these albums. These albums are really good examples of this sound and this energy that was coming from the East Coast. The producers on this album were Buck Wild and Rock Wilder, who would eventually become bigger players in production in the later 90s and the early 2000s. They, along with DJ Premier, were sort of the architects of this new sound that Wu-Tang helped launch with the RZA the year prior to that. The South wanted in too. I mean, this energy would also lead to the classic debut album from Outkast out of Atlanta called Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music, which had a gritty, grimy sound. It was underground beats from the South on a major R&B label. This was a big deal for LaFace. Just didn't have any kind of artists like this before. And the album was a big success and really kind of launched the whole energy out of the South. So that's a little bit of the picture of what was happening in 94. Hip-hop was exploding. And you can kind of say Wu-Tang was leading the way. The RZA was busy during this time. In 1994, he put together a supergroup under the genre in hip-hop at the time called Horrorcore. The group was named The Gravediggers. The name of the album was Six Feet Deep, and it was sort of the stars aligning of A-Talent. Think sort of like a watch to throne, but with a collective of successful artists and producers up to that point. The Gravediggers consisted of the RZA, who was known as the Resurrector, producer Prince Paul, a.k.a. The Undertaker. Now, Prince Paul, he was another guy that doesn't get the props he should get. He was in hip-hop's first band, Stetsasonic. Go check out Ghost Stetsa, Sally, talking all that jazz. But Prince Paul's claim to fame was really being the mastermind behind De La Soul and their massive first three albums. I mean, Three Feet High and Rising, when that came out in the late 80s, was a game changer, similar to what Wu-Tang's album was in 93. Prince Paul was a very creative producer with a unique sound. Also in this group was Fruit Kwan, a.k.a. The Gatekeeper. He was a member of Stetsasonic and the late Poetic, a.k.a. The Grim Reaper. Man, yo, great baby niggas fall for the darkness of the universe, I'm saying. The life we live is like a horror movie, I'm saying. The struggle we go through is like a horror movie. When you hear the album Wave Digger six feet deep, or sir, six feet deep, that's 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 deepness. That's going into the darkness six times. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say. 
they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They released the album Six Feet Deep in the summer of 1994. And because of the success of Wu-Tang's 36 Chamber a year earlier and the combination of so much hip-hop energy, it garnered a lot of interest. And the album was a classic. In fact, go stream it right now. I promise you the beats, the lyrics, the energy. It was just a really, really good album from start to finish. If you love hip-hop, you'll love the Gravediggers. And in the summer of 1994, I remember I booked them to do a show in Philly And actually, I had Jay-Z, who was at that point a part of the group Original Flavor. He wasn't really Jay-Z, the solo artist yet. He opened up for them. I had uh, Buster was there. I had all these really cool people. So I I just remember that Greek picnic, Philadelphia, 1994, because the Gravediggers didn't do a lot of shows, and they did that show. That was really a a cool moment for hip-hop. And and we didn't have cameras and we didn't we we didn't capture stuff like the way we capture stuff now. And uh, that's something I think about often. The Gravediggers were really the first project after 36 Chambers for the RZA, and they had an impact. Being that us, Gravediggers, and the Wu-Tang, we are East Coast-based rappers, but also within the whole family structure, you know what I'm saying? Gravediggers are veterans and have seniority within the game. Um, 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 You have new individuals, new rappers that's coming up, you know what I'm saying? And they're being guided well. Some rappers are coming up young, and they're not being guided. By, by, by their own originality. They're being guided by a, a higher power in the record label who's telling them, I want you to sound like this guy. You know what I'm saying? But even though the family relationship, be, uh, the family relationship between us and the Wu, it's like this album, you hear all Wu-Tang production. You know what I'm saying? So the beat is all Wu-Tang. But lyrically, Grave Diggers, we write our own lyrics. Nobody write lyrics for us. So the summer of 94, you have the Grave Diggers. Then a few months later, you get the next Wu-Tang-related project. It's Method Man's debut solo album, Takao. Now, Takao was similar to Wu-Tang. It was an acronym meaning taking into consideration all lives. Basically, you know what I'm saying? The album is ill, like my surroundings. You know what I'm saying? I represent my peoples to the fullest because I be a family man. And the clan represent the family. You know what I'm saying? Word up. Keep in mind that it made sense for this album to come out because Method Man was really the first high-profile Wu-Tang member. He really stood out. I mean, he had the B-side to protect your neck, M-A-T-H-O-D, man, which was an ode to him, and fans wanted more. And once they started venturing into the solo part of it, fans were scared because the group was so successful, many feared that they would break up. But a recurring theme throughout their solo journey most of them took was that the W Wu-Tang came first. This is like extracurricular activities for myself so I can shine. You know what I'm saying? The Wu is still together. Matter of fact, the next album will be late 95. Look out for that piece too. Look out for that piece. Takao was not a disappointment. The first single was Bring the Pain. It was released in the fall of 1995, and it picked up where Method Man's last single left off. The video visuals were memorable. He had this whole dead-eye bit that he would do. Um, They filmed the video sort of in black and white, a little bit of color, and it had that same gritty feel that Protect Your Neck had and Method Man's single had. 
There were no women in the video except in the last scene with a flashback of a drunken mother passed out and a young method man taking money from her purse. The difference, though, with this project is the multi-million dollar Def Jam machine behind it. The marketing was pumped through every major U.S. city. The Takao logo was an upside down Wu logo, but it felt compatible. So you could see how this benefited the Wu brand and Wu-Tang's label loud went along for the ride. Def Jam pushed the button and bring the pain with PLO style as the B-side was perfect setup for the Takao album. Years later, comedian Chris Rock would name his tour Bring the Pain. The second single off of Takao was Release Your Delph with a hook based on Gloria Gaynor's disco classic, I Will Survive. It had every club going. Again, the RZA came with fresh, exciting beats. Method Man was the breakout star from the Wu-Tang Clan. Well, I think it's the feeling and emotion that I put into it. You know what I'm saying? I take my time with each rhyme so that everybody can relate to it. Whoever been through the struggles I've been through is going to relate to my music. Now, I mentioned how there were no women in the Bring the Pain video. This was sort of a theme from this era. Most of the videos were all a bunch of dudes nodding their heads from from Wu-Tang to Mob Deep. It was a man's world. Method Man, though, would change the game. The third track from the album was All I Need. It featured a very dirty RZA beat that went so hard, but when it was time to release it as a single, something very special happened. And one thing you should do is go back to the Takao album and listen to the original version of All I Need before we get into this remix, because then you'll have an understanding of what I'm talking about. At that time, of course, one of the biggest R&B artists was the queen of hip hop soul, Mary J. Blige, who two years earlier, after being a background singer, released her debut album, What's the 411, which, similar to Method Man's Wu-Tang Clan, had a tremendous success. What's the 411 sold 3.3 million copies and Mary became a household name in every hood. In 1994, Method Man and Mary ascended at the same time. The day after Method Man released Bring the Pain, Mary released her first single from her second album, Be Happy. Two weeks after Method Man released Takao, Mary J. Blige released her classic second album, My Life. If every dude that liked hip-hop loved Method Man, every female that liked hip-hop and R&B loved Mary J. Blige. Def Jam executives had the idea of flipping this song into a duet. Method Man didn't want any part of this. He felt softening the song would ruin his hardcore image. Label head Lear Cohen asked Method Man, what would it take for him to do this version? He asked for a new car. So he got cash instead and invested it. The label A&R initially pitched Lauren Hill, who was an unknown member of an up-and-coming group called the Fugees, who hadn't popped yet, but they were about to ascend. And I'll talk a little bit about them as we continue on this solo journey for Wu-Tang. Lear Cohen laughed the A&R out of the room. He didn't know who Lauren Hill was. It just so happened, though, that Mary J. Blige was a huge fan of Method Man and asked a Def Jam A&R to get her an autographed CD. This sparked the idea of putting them together. Mary's producer at the time, of course, was Puff Daddy. And Puff came from hip hop. And in that moment, he was the remix king. He put a masterpiece of remixes together for many a different artist. So this all aligned together to make perfect sense. He put together the remix based on a legendary Motown collaboration of Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. The remix was I'll Be There For You, You're All I Need. And it changed the course of Method Man's career. The song was a massive success, hitting number one on the R&B charts and number three on the pop charts. Method Man became a sex symbol and would not have male-only videos anymore. At one point, other singers wanted a piece of Method Man. In fact, Erica Badu, who was another very successful singer at that time, featured him in her Next Lifetime video with fellow hip-hop legend Pete Rock. Takao went on to sell 1.6 million copies. Next up... My name is Old Dirty Bastard. You know what I'm saying? 
I don't hide nothing back. I, I barely, I, I mean, I mean, I come from a family, man, of, of poor welfare. You know what I'm saying? I, when I came out my, mom, my my mother's womb, I was on welfare. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so it's like you gotta keep it real. And I mean, and see if you if you jump if you jump into anything and you try to change your way, see, cause see, it's like okay, where, where I come from in my neighborhood, my people know me. You know what I'm saying? Mm. See, if I try to come any different, they ain't gonna respect me no more. You know what I'm saying? Because they, you know, people got that thing about themselves. You know, if you come from that neighborhood, you know what I'm saying? You can, you can get out the neighborhood, but you can never take the neighborhood out of the people. You know what I'm saying? But if, if you try to, like, jump and cross over to the other side, people understand that, and they, they, they don't like that. That's why they don't be buying people music. See, we keep it real. We, we always going to keep it real. This is, this is Wu-Tang, we, we on some mad reality. We showing how the streets really is. People may knock us. You know what I'm saying? But we showing it. You can't knock what's real. You know what I'm saying? We telling the truth, man. The most compelling member of the group is Russell Tyrone Jones, a.k.a. ODB. Let me let y'all know, yes, we are live. And the show just started. Just because you don't hear no music, just go with the flow. He was sort of what Flavor Flav was to Public Enemy. The wild card. Anything goes with ODB, who was beloved by the people. And if you grew up in the hood... Any hood, anywhere, you knew a guy like ODB. The guy used a replica of his welfare ID as the album cover. And on the eve of the debut of his album, took an MTV film crew to the welfare office in Brooklyn to collect his food stamps and cash his check. Unfortunately for anybody else that was on welfare, that stunt was used as an example of welfare fraud. And it was during this time that the government revised its social safety net programs under the Bill Clinton administration. This was a bipartisan agreement. And what started to happen was everybody that was getting benefits could not get benefits anymore unless they showed proof that they got a job. It was all kind of things that kind of went into play. But unfortunately, this was used as an example is people on welfare aren't. Uh, working hard, they are mooching the system. And of course, that's not true for many people. They need this to survive. But this was used as an example. And then, of course, one of his most famous moments in later years was him crashing the Grammys because Wu-Tang didn't win their nomination. Please calm down. The music and everything. everything. That, um, I went and bought me an outfit today that costed a lot of money today. You know what I mean? Because I figured that Wu-Tang was going to win. I don't know how y'all see it, but when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. We teach the children. You know what I mean? So after the success of Tikal, Method Man's solo album, the fans really anticipated what the RZA and his cousin Russell would put together. I interviewed ODB a few days before the release of his debut solo album. He had some drinks beforehand. And like I told you how the Wu-Tang Clan almost cost me my gig, he almost cost me my gig as well. When you see my album, <laughs> you're going to see something that you've never seen before. I, I, I dog. you that. Break down that little song thing you do before your shows, kid. Well, what are you talking about? All right, music. This is dedicated to all the ladies in the house. It was written by Isaac Hayes, but it's dedicated from No Dirty Bastion. Ladies, if you see me walking down the street, 
Now start to cry Each time we meet Baby, what I want you to do is Walk on by Walk on by Make me leave That you don't see the tears So let me be The sadness Oh baby I gave you when you see me walking, walking down the street. I break down and cry. Walk on by. Yo, yo, imagine, no, but imagine if I would have kept singing, though. <laughs> I don't you know what it is like. Look, your, your, your grandmother would be like, get that boy off the stage. You, your young girl be like, I like that boy. That's right, it's different. Yo, to the drug selling this, I'd be like, yo, 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 dirty, you crazy, but you got to stop that sh-. And to the ladies, I love you too. Alright, hey yo, oh, I got the album right here, man. So we're gonna drop a couple cuts. Right now we're gonna go into Baby Baby Come On. How you like that flavor right there? It's live. Yo, this is live. You're hearing a song. Hold on, let me take my shirt off. <laughs> yes. He really took his shirt off in the interview and spilled a bottle of Alize all over the board. Our engineer was not too happy about this. I almost lost my job again. In the first week of January, in the winter of 1995, ODB dropped Brooklyn Zoo. Again, RZA delivered a fantastic beat, continuing that Wu-Tang, grimy street sound. It would set off another explosive 1995 for the Wu-Tang Clan, as ODB was the first of three solo albums released that year. But forget about all that. I just want to let all y'all people know that old dirty bastard... Album, excuse me, I burnt, but don't worry about it. My album be out March the 28th, right? Return to the 36 Chambers was just that. It was very similar to Wu-Tang's debut album, 36 Chambers. So again, he comes by my show, and I just kind of keep the mics up, and he just takes over and at one point does a live performance on the air. Yo, sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to go just crazy kid tonight. But I just want y'all to know that when y'all hear me, hear me well. I'll send you straight to This whole thing went on for a while. ODB is just really entertaining. And down the line over the next few years, he had this affinity for Philadelphia. So he would just show up in the city and show up at the radio stations numerous times over the next few years. Kind of what Flavor Flav did, because when Flavor was in Public Enemy, he would he did the same thing. The second single off of Return of the 36 Chambers was an anthem. It was Shimmy Shimmy Y'all. The album went on to go platinum. Another Wu-Tang solo success story. We all loved ODB's energy and vibe. And again, in every community, there's somebody like an ODB that just really stood out. But sadly, he had been through so much, including being shot and almost dying, that you loved the guy and you cared about the guy, but you worried about him as well. 
This one part of my interview from March of 1995 is a real snapshot of ODB. So the mad hip hop was, a, you know, um, when I got shot, you know what I'm saying, it made me a little crazier. You know what I'm saying? Just, you know what I'm saying? Just let me, just let me go crazy. You know what I'm saying? Just respect it. That's it. Um, excuse me for cursing, but um, for real, I got shot in my back, came out through my stomach. Happy to be here. You know what I'm saying? So um, I'm gonna I'm make, I'm gonna make sure. That um, that all my fans and people that's not my fans, yo, don't it sound like I'm getting ready to tell a little poetry? <laughs> nah, for real. I want to make sure I'm, the peoples is with me, man, because um, I love y'all. I love my peoples. You know what I'm saying? And um, if, if it was if it was meant for me to die, then y'all wouldn't hear me lie. You know, not I mean lie, not lie. And goodbye. Yes. So let's fast forward to the summer of 1995, and the next Wu-affiliated solo project was a twofer. It was now time for Raekwon the Chef's solo project, but most of the songs on this album featured Ghostface Killer, the album only built for Cuban links. The Wu-Tang saga continues. Raekwon the Chef, the next member, of, along with Ghostface Killer, the next members of the Wu to come out with an album. Right. What's going on, man? Tell everybody what's Yo, happening kid, with Ray we just, Kwan. We just been stacking up the hundreds, you know what I mean? <laughs> Getting ready for whatever, whatever, you know? But right. you know, basically, we just been blowing, you know? Everything is going according to the plan, you know? Okay. And, and it's like, it's like, yo, man, we here, man. We told y'all last year we was going to be here, man. Right. So that's how it's going down. And we're going to be here again okay. and again, you know what I mean? All right, now tell me a little bit about this album, Only Built for Cuban Links. Yo, Starks, hit them Starks. Hit yeah, hit yeah, yeah, stocks. yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. It's like this, though. You know, I know a lot of brothers, you know, they know what the link is, Cuban link, you know. It's like a tr- strong chain, though. But you know what I'm saying? What we take it is it's on some, like... The whole science about the chain is being tight, though. You know what I'm saying? Being well together and stuff like that, though. You know, if you have any weak link inside the chain, man, or inside the click, man, the whole click is liable to fall off, or the or the whole or the whole link is just about to be loose, man. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So only built for Cuban links is bros. They keeping they click strong. You know what I'm no saying? Okay. It's holding the fort down. Everything is strong and and well built, like well built like cement. Word you know up. what I'm saying? So everybody can live good, eat steak and all that. Okay. You know, I'm saying so okay. that's the whole sign to uh, only built for Cuba links, man. Because a lot it ain't built for everybody, you know well, what I'm nah. saying? Okay. I'm, we, uh. like we like we say, we, we wouldn't recommend this to little kids and all yeah, that stuff yeah. like that, though, right, right. you know what I'm saying? Only, only like well, only for all like, ages like, like, and yeah, stuff like, like that, ages, you know what I'm saying? Like crabs. 18 and older, whatever, whatever, whatever. Okay. Okay. But um, so well, that's that's me, but so right it's there. like this in, in three short words the chain don't break, man. Woo, we here forever, we ain't going nowhere by us having our little solo careers and all that. That don't mean nothing. The love still stays there, kid. Okay. And, and congratulations. whoever gave us love, you know what I mean? Congratulations on the platinum Wu-Tang album, True. 36 no Chambers. When is no the new doubt. Wu-Tang album coming out? I keep hearing all these different Just dates. It's like, um, nah, we coming out like it's just some time in the winter because we got too many albums out right now. Yeah, right. Because after this album, the Jizz is going to drop. Yeah, right. So we're going to do this like around in um, December, December, January. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So okay. um, around, around, around in that, when it's it be like cold, this. around in that time. It's like right this. There, we just going to keep following the cycle, you know what I mean? Okay. It's like yeah. every man gets like like six months of doing his own project, right. and then we hit you with the next project, right. and then he lived for six months, right, so it's right. like, we gonna be here from the winter to, yo, my joint is gonna ride to the winter. It's like, it's like from 95, 
95 to 97, we're going to have this live. Okay, yeah. so now y'all still a family right now. Oh, Everyone's yeah, no doubt. Everyone's blowing up all over the place. Yeah. No right. problems. Everyone's no still doubt. together, right? Yeah, all still the time. together. All That's good. That's Everything good. comes back World together. Because you guys, I've, I mean, I've known you guys for like three years, and you guys have always been right. tight. When right. I first came right. out, and now y'all still, so y'all still, everything's still. Right. Right. We right. arguing right. all that, right. though, but it's still love. Yeah. It's major love. That's a knowledge that holds us strong like that. You know what I'm saying? Out of all the people in the group, all the MCs, I always felt that Ghost and Ray were the most compatible together on tracks. You know, whenever they would do a song together, it was just like Batman and Robin. They were just going back and forth. And at this point, the Cuban Links was my favorite of the solo albums at this point in history, at this moment when I was hearing it, because I was, remember, dealing with every album that would come out. And you could feel my excitement in the interview over this album when I was interviewing them, again, on a late night, this was a few days before it's released. They show up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was supposed to get off the air at 2, but they showed up, and we had a great conversation. Word this up. Red zone, red zone. This album is so fat. I just got it tonight. I was telling them I just got it tonight, and I went through, like, uh, they would ask me what cuts I like, and I just named off, like, the first eight cuts. They was like, damn, you know what I mean? I like Word. everything on here. And this is the RZA's best album out of all of yeah, all that's the how you feel. The best that's one. how you feel? I'm show you right now. The you like the 50th one. person who said that, so Glad. I got to yeah, take yeah. it. Well, it's yeah. like this, man. We, yo, the love is all good, and it's just getting us stronger, man. But can I all say right. one thing, though? You Go know what I'm saying? Before you do it, though, because, you know, it's like it's like everybody got their own flavor. Matt Fat is flavor. He chose his own beats. Dirty right. chose his own beats. Right. No we chose our own beats. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, that's that. That's where it comes at. We got the air for this, so we feel this is what best right here, though. Okay. You know all what right. I'm saying? And though? that criminology rap, man. That's criminology. Who the hell are you? Criminology. So Ghost and Ray started the summer with Criminology, which was a hardcore, very loud track with samples from uh, clips from the Scarface movie. It was also the setup for Ice Cream, another Wu classic. Ice Cream was sort of a salute to women with Method Man on the hook. What's that all about, yo? It's about chicks. It's about women, women, chicks, fly chicks. Keep your nails done, Reebok rocking, bamboo airing. Ice Cream lit up the summer of 1995, competing with Biggie's One More Chance. The beats and lyrics were on point on this album. You know, some of the tracks that were just fire was Incarcerated Scarfaces, Knowledge God, Rainy Days, the regular version and the remix. They did a remix to Rainy Days with a cool Harold Melvin and the Blue Note sample. Guillotine, Glaciers of Ice. Ooh, man, you just got to sit back and listen to these songs. Verbal Intercourse, Woo Gambinos. I could go on and on and on. Now, similar to what Method Man did the year prior with Mary J. Blige, Ghost and Ray teamed up with the hottest R&B group at the time, which was Jodeci. And this particular night, they had just come from recording this remix with them and we premiered it oh this is this is some real live exclusive 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 okay you know what i mean me and ghost you know what i mean we got honored to get down with a joint with somebody that i know everybody like right you know what i mean and it was joe to see you okay. know what i mean they had called us down to the you know what i mean okay like yo we got some wolf flavor for y'all so i was like what yeah okay. <laughs> let's see what's up you know what i mean me and, me and stark slid up there whatever whatever and it was sounding right so anything happened in one night you know Okay, well, we're going to jump it, into that classic. right now. Jump into it, baby. It's a classic. All right, what's it, what's it called? Um, it's it's the Freaking You remix. Freak okay. You remix, you yeah, know what I'm saying? It's right. banging all that other remix stuff that's out right now. The Jodeci remix took off that fall, and between Ice Cream and Freaking You, Ghost and Ray were continuing the Wu-Tang dynasty. Cuban Links went on to go platinum and considered a classic. 
that November in 1995, the fifth Wu-Tang affiliated album came out and the man who got his deal early on, but it didn't work out, got his redemption. And that's the Jizza. And he came with Liquid Swords. And this album lived up to the previous solo projects. Liquid Swords was really more of a hip hop lovers album. The tracks that stood out to me were Duel of the Iron Mike, Labels, which was his description of the rap label game in 1995. Fourth Chamber was ridiculous. You're out of luck like two dogs stuck. Love that line. And my co-favorites on the album was Cold World and Shadowboxing. Meth had a verse on Shadowboxing, even though you'll love his verse, but you'll get lost in the RZA beat. That's just a great song. Liquid Swords didn't have huge radio singles, but it was a really a great album, song for song. Another platinum album from the Wu-Tang camp. And I know you keep hearing me tell these stories. Living at that time and being a part of it, like looking back, the Wu-Tang Clan was really a phenomenon in hip hop. We had never seen anything like this. I mean, if, I mean, think about it. I just told you about five platinum solo albums after a multi-platinum debut album. This is not just a hip hop thing. This just doesn't really happen in music. So 95 was a great year for hip hop and a great year for the Wu-Tang Clan. Then came one of the greatest years in hip hop, 1996. The hip hop genre was bigger than ever with lots of huge projects. Think about 96, Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt, The Fuji's The Score, Tupac Gets Out of Jail and Drops All Eyes on Me, Double Album. Then, then we tragically lose Tupac, and a few weeks after his death, drop Machiavelli. It was just a great time to love hip-hop. Outkast released AT Aliens. The Roots released Illadelph Half-Life. De La Soul released Stakes is High. Red Man had Muddy Waters. I could go on and on, but 96 was sort of a watershed moment for the culture. And pretty much the Wu-Tang took 96 off as they recorded their second album, which was coming in 97. But the RZA was really paying attention. And that fall, they gave us a little taste of what was coming in 97. So in the fall of 96, Ghostface drops his solo album, Iron Man. Once again, I thought Cuban Links was my my high water mark. Nope, it was Iron Man. That was my new favorite Wu-Tang affiliated album. It was like the RZA took a vacation and came back with like the perfect beats and samples. I mean, Iron Maiden, which was amazing. Then it was Wildflower with the black or exploitation clip from JD's Revenge. The beat kind of traps you from the moment you hear it. And then Ghost just gets so disrespectful. It's just a really good song. 260 with the Al Green sample, Assassination Day, Boxing Hand with Staten Island Legends, Force MDs on the hook. Daytona 500 still goes hard. Then, similar to Method Man a few years earlier, Ghost does All That I Got With You with Mary J. Blige on a remix. Then it was Cam May with the Can We Try sample from Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah, you can really tell I love this album. Ghostface did it again a few years later with his follow-up to Iron Man, Supreme Clientele, and we discussed these great albums. Yeah, it's been a long time. You know, I done went through my little trials and tribulations and, you know, dropped that Iron Man album back in the day. You know what I mean? I didn't really get to do no songs and no shows. I had to, you know, go back to work with Wu-Tang and all that. Right. All that, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I finally just got my chance to get ahead and just work on this. Even though it took me like around a year and a half, you know, I went through a little bit of trouble. You know, I done went to jail right, and all that. Right, right. So, you know, now tell everybody a little bit about that experience because from what I understand that really changed you. Yeah, it's, you know, you know, whenever you go somewhere, you know what I mean, and especially in there though, you know, at the same time you might go through your hell, but it gives you a peace of mind and you know what I mean to help you 
focus on things. You know what I mean? The things that you was missing from just being out in the world. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I came out a better man than that right there, though. You know what I'm saying? And All right. came back and continued, you know, where I left off at. Now, how much time did you put into this album? Like um like around that much time except for the little four months that I missed when I was locked right, up, you right, know what I'm saying? Right. And then um you know going through a lot of um you know things with the company sample sample clearances like you can't use that so you got to get back right, and right. get another beat whatever whatever. It's like yo I just but what I really wanted to do was just bring that old Wu sound back, you know what I mean? That the right. people really been missing right, and stuff right. like that. So I t I focus hard on the music, you know what I mean? And I snatched everybody, you know what I mean? That I right. felt was proper and laid it down. What I really love, though, about um, the RZA's production and all of the Wu-Tang projects were how they brought back old soul. It's like, that's the era. Where, that's where era we came from right there. You know, that was when times was real. That was the yeah. days of Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X and all of that, you know? So it's like we could relate to the struggle. And that music right there, that it just touched the soul. Yeah, that soul right mm -hmm. there. It's like, right. it's like you know, we was born, we was raised off that. You know, I used to get kicked out the living room when moms had her friends over there. Right. You know what I mean? But it's like, even when I went in the room, I still heard the music. Right. And for mm -hmm. some reason, it's like, that's what made me the man I am today. Like, they, when I write my music and you hear the music, it's like, it gives me the, uh, I'm a soul person. You heard my last album right, with Al Green, right, right, the right, Delphonics, right. All I Got Is You Is Mary J. It's like, I'd rather write music off of that than what I would do to regular beats like right now. That's hot. You know what I'm saying? That's hot. But even if you took a regular beat right now, you still will add that flavor into yeah. it. Somehow that old mm -hmm. flavor. I always right. love that about the songs because I think that the music now is not, you know, a lot of people don't focus, don't, you know, yeah. they don't, they don't, it's all different now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know what? The music, pardon me for a second, the music back then mm -hmm. was more realer yeah. than it is right oh, now. Oh, hell yeah. That's you know what They saying? used to play the instruments. You right. know, it's not no machine doing McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Between Iron Man and Supreme Clientele, it was almost like RZA was hiding beats. You know, one of my favorites off of Supreme Clientele was Nutmeg, which will lull you to sleep. One, which takes you to another level. Saturday Night is sort of like a story. Apollo Kids was a movie. You still hear a lot of these beats. People use these beats to freestyle off of and just use these beats in general. Buck 50, Meth Delivers Again, Mighty Healthy is a sophisticated track. Supreme Clientele was a, was another classic. My my favorite on the album was Cherge uh, La Ghost, which took a sample of the Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band club classic Shay Shay Lafa. It's like, you know what I mean? It's my man Carlos had you know he had his wife on tape, she had sung it over. Right. But it was like when I just when I went the way when I heard it, I don't know, it just it just caught me. Right. You know what I'm saying? It just it just came to me. It was like and it was all meant. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, and I ain't I ain't afraid to tap into other chambers. Right. It's just how you do it. Right. How you put it down. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you know, I just like, yo, I gotta get on that 
And I just, you know, me snatched her up, whatever we did it. What was fascinating about Ghosts in this time period, hip-hop was still extremely male-focused in the mid-90s. It was like dudes making music for other dudes, especially the hardcore rappers. The genre was still day-parted on radio, and the melodic female-friendly hip-hop songs would start to take shape consistently years later. LL was actually always good for the melodic songs, and he would get major airplay, but everyone else, it was sort of hardcore. Ghostface had a passionate fan base, even though his music was so hardcore. Not often do you have ladies calling in wanting to cook for an artist. But yeah, he was loved for sure. Check out this moment um, we had. This is a 29-year-old Ghostface in his prime and the women calling in to show him all his love. What's up, baby girl? Nothing. I just wanted to let you know that um, I'm digging you. And a lot of girls don't dig y'all. Don't dig Blue and you because they don't know what y'all talking about. They can't understand it. But I understand you. I dig you. Sure, indeed. That's all. You get the new album, Ma? Of course. What's your favorite cut? I like Apollo Kids. I really do. Because I was liking the video from the beginning. Yeah. That video's hot. Yeah, and everybody was like, why you like that? I'm like, because he hot. Y'all sleeping, but... Right, 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 right. And I just wanted to let you know, I don't really mess with dudes like that, but I, I would mess with you because you real. It's AKA yes, Ghostface. What's the deal? I just wanted to know how old he was and if he, if he had a wife or a girlfriend. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I got a girl and all that. You know what I'm saying? I'm 29, you know? Oh, you are? Oh, you're my age. Yeah, I yeah. Okay. You got to cook? Yeah, well, I was getting ready to say, if you're staying in town, you can come and eat some dinner. What <laughs> you cooking, ma? Whatever you want. All right, you know you know pork, right? Oh, I don't either. All right. That's good, then. Hello? Peace, 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 peace. peace. Hi. How you feeling? Oh, my God. Yeah? Ghostface. Hi. Oh, my God. I'm excited. What's up, baby? You so real? Huh? So real, mommy. Hi. Um, I wanted to know if I could make you some ziti. Word? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. You could definitely make me so easy. When are you going to come get it? Huh? We, we, we got, you got to leave a number behind, you know? Well, we got we got your number, man. I told you I was going to call you back with ghosts. I didn't know Two you were telling the truth. You know how to make ZD like that, though? Yes, I do. Real good, right? Mm-hmm. What's going on, boy? How you doing, y'all? I caught your CD. I keep playing it over and over. I had it before everybody. A word? Uh, I even had it before the stores had it. Do it. <laughs> Two <laughs> indeed. It's real, it's real. Just let you know that I am madly in love with you. Right. I have everything that you have ever had. You know what I'm saying? I got all your posters, everything. Right. So I'm not no uh, little girl. I'm 23. Right. So, um, how long are you going to be in the city? You're going to be here for a minute, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they got to eat and yeah, stuff and politics. I'm saying you're staying overnight. Uh, maybe. I don't know. You I'm know saying what's up. What's up, girl? I need to see you. You do? I really do. It's like that? Oh, yeah. It's like that. Oh. If Wu-Tang is for the children... Then Ghostface is for the ladies. <laughs> so anyway, I kind of went ahead of myself. Supreme Clientele came out a few years later, but the interview that I did with him was during that album. So I wanted to share us having conversations about Iron Man and Supreme Clientele. However, in the summer of 1997, the highly anticipated follow-up album Wu-Tang Forever was released. This was a much different group by then. The sophomore album is always tough for any artist when you drop a debut classic. They came out in 1993. It was now 1997. Four years might as well be 10 years in hip-hop. And at that particular time, during this renaissance of the 90s, things were moving at warp speed. So much had changed. Yes, the Wu kept giving us a taste over the previous four years through the various solo projects, but this album came out at a pivotal time in hip-hop history. Think about it. This was nine months after the death of Tupac, who... When this East Coast, West Coast stuff was happening, Wu-Tang had no part of it. 
It was also three months after the death of the Notorious B.I.G., which for East Coast artists, it really hit home heavy. Plus, between 93 and 95, Big and Wu-Tang helped bring New York hip hop back to the forefront. Now, I don't know this for a fact. I'm just guessing here. But you can kind of say that Wu-Tang paved the way in September of 1993. Then Biggie dropped in 1994. Biggie was recording Ready to Die while Enter the 36 Chambers was really being unleashed on the culture. There had to be influence. The, the RZA was sort of like the East Coast Dr. Dre with the tracks. Puffy was the remix king. Both Biggie and Wu-Tang own the hip-hop scene on the East Coast and opened the door for several waves of artists. Wu-Tang Forever was a double album, and the beats were just what the culture needed. The sound was still raw, and the clan delivered a masterpiece in this second album. 27 songs, diverse MCs who have clearly grown since the first album. Then you add in some amazing beats, some unique samples. This was a big-ass album. It was like the RZA was the Pied Piper through all the solo projects, leaving little nuggets of what Wu-Tang Forever would deliver. The tracks that stood out reunited. For heaven's sake, Cash Still Rules. A Better Tomorrow was an ode to life on the streets. Go listen to the lyrics to that song. It's Yours, the track alone. Triumph, which was the first single with ODB leading the way. Let's take it back to 79. The song was cinematic. Bells of War, the MGM was a continuation of Cuban Links. Ghost and Ray gave the fans what they expected on that track. Dog Shit was a continuation of ODB's solo project. Wu-Tang Forever would sell almost 700,000 copies in its first week and go on to be the best-selling Wu-Tang album to date, four times platinum. They would go on a world tour. I mean, this was the height of all heights for the Wu-Tang Clan. The group would go on to make other albums plus other solo projects, but success waned. I would probably say Supreme Clientele was a great win for them after Wu-Tang Forever. A few members did jail time for various crimes. ODB continued to become more eccentric in his behavior. However, he would get these opportunities to collab and had a few massive hits, including Fantasy Remix with Mariah Carey, which was a number one pop hit across the world, breaking lots of sales records. Sadly, he would die two days shy of his 36th birthday inside the RZA studio of a drug overdose. His death hit the clan hard, especially the RZA and the Jizza, his cousins. The group would continue to record over the years, but nothing made it to the level of the first two albums. In 2015, they recorded Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, an album which was sold for $2 million to one person and not to be released for 88 years. The one person that bought it happened to be Scum of the Earth. It was an American businessman named Martin Scarelli who owned a pharmaceutical company that jacked up the price of a life-saving drug from $13 a pill to $750 a pill, causing a lot of people to suffer. It was a major news story mainly because Martin, when confronted about this drug going from $13 to $750, he was very arrogant about it and, and kind of shrugged it off. He was given the name Pharma Bro and became a poster child for the evil pharmaceutical industry. Angered by the negativity of this situation to the Wu-Tang brand, they tried to get the album back, but were actually attacked by Scarelli. The guy was, you know, it's a very interesting um, story. You should, uh, if you're not familiar with it, you should Google it. They eventually donated most of the proceeds of this album to charity. The Wu-Tang Clan is an American success story rooted in hard work. Many that come from where these brothers come from don't experience the amount of success and life-changing opportunities that they had. The RZA started working on other projects under a new moniker, Bobby Digital, including scoring movies. 
He didn't stray far away from his original Kung Fu Wu-Tang roots. He scored his first film called Ghost Dog, which featured Forrest Whitaker. He directed his first film, The Man with the Iron Fist, and aligned with Wu-Tang fans Quentin Tarantino and horror movie legend Eli Roth. They kind of helped him with this project. This movie starred Russell Crowe, and the RZA was actually in the movie, and he acted as well. The RZA would also produce soundtracks for movies. He did Tarantino's Kill Bill movie soundtracks. He also acted in several big-budget films, including American Gangster with Denzel Washington. He even played himself on an episode of The Simpsons. Method Man would expand his horizons and team up with Red Man. They were both label mates. They were on various tours with Def Jam, and they ended up becoming friends. And then they became a recording duo and recorded and did a few albums together. Their their debut album together was Blackout, and and they were sort of like a modern-day Cheech and Chong. They even made a movie together called How High that featured uh, Mike Epps. One of my favorite collaborations that they've ever done is The Rock Wilder. You should stop and take a listen to The Rock Wilder. That song is just a, this is a classic hip hop track and The Rock Wilder produced it, but it's just such a big record and best represents that Method Man and Red Man sound. Meth would expand even further into the acting world and he has appeared in over 40 films, including Belly, Red Tails, Shaft. He had a role in the critically acclaimed TV series, The Wire. He was in the TV show The Deuce. He was in Luke Cage. Meth would even become the host of his own game show called Drop the Mic, which put celebrities in rap battles. The Wu-Tang Clan is still having impact today. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. That's the Wu-Tang Clan. On the next episode, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the industry side and talk to label executive, label owner, and industry titan, Steve Rifkin, the man who signed the Wu-Tang Clan, Big Pun, Dead Prez, Mob Deep. We'll get into all of that on the next episode. You, you have all of corporate debt, right? First of all, this is they rented out like an old age home. I mean, it was, the, it was a, a crazy night. And you had all the Germans in the front row. And Dirty comes out, like sitting at the edge of the stage, like with his legs over. And he starts singing somewhere over the rainbow before anybody. And um, they come running out with water guns and ski masks when protecting that kid. And the fucking five leaders of BMG worldwide fall to the floor. The Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC. On Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.